0: A reading from John chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the Place of the Skull, which in Hebrew is called Gogotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but this man said I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Here ends the reading. Where were you when they crucified Jesus? Where were you when they nailed him to the tree? Did you see when the soldier pierced him in his side? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? I was there that day in Golgotha. I was standing right there when they beat and ridiculed Jesus the Christ. I was there when they asked Simon of Cyrene to carry his cross when he couldn't carry it anymore. I was there when they tore his clothes, when they taunted and laughed at him, when they spit on his face. I was there at the cross when they crucified Jesus my Lord. I guess it's not that big of a deal if you think about it. There were a lot of people who were there, too many to be exact. Mobs of people laughing and cheering. Howling and weeping, you could barely see your own feet on the ground, hear your own voice above the chaos, distinguish your own heartbeat from the throngs of people pressing in against you. If you were there, you would know what I'm talking about. So many people who desperately wanted to see this man destroyed, but also so many people who desperately wanted to see him live. It was crazy what an effect he had on those he encountered. You either loved him or you hated him. He was either the son of God or the king of liars, the answer to every question you ever had or the biggest threat to everything you believed in. There was no in-between. You were either there to watch this man or maniac or messiah finally prove just how powerful he was, or you were there to watch him burn. In the end, it didn't matter why you were there. In those final hours, on that morning, standing around the cross, we were all together, followers and foes, moving as one, our eyes glued to the battered, bruised and bloodied frame of the humble carpenter's son. Were you there when they hammered those nails right through his hands and his feet? Did you hear the sound it made when the nails pierced his flesh and broke his bones? We were so tuned in to his every move that pretty soon our breath began to match his, ragged and slow. Every time he sputtered or coughed, our bodies would do the same. Sure, some of us had pure hatred in our eyes, while others of us had nothing but love. But in the end, because each and every one of us came with the same intention, it didn't really matter. All we wanted to see was who was right about Jesus of Nazareth. Was he just another power-hungry prophet, or was he actually the Messiah we'd all been waiting for? It's funny because not long before that fateful morning, a good number of folks would have put their money on Jesus as the Messiah. At his peak, thousands of people gathered from near and far just to hear what he had to say. Were you there when he fed the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish? Did you hear that he had the power to heal the blind and crippled, to see into a person's past and future, to cast out demons and bring the dead back to life? No wonder the crowd screamed his name when he entered Jerusalem, spreading their cloaks on the ground before him. As far as they knew, they were watching a king on his way to a coronation, riding in glory to claim his crown. Were you there when they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord? Did you hear the crowd screaming his name? But it didn't end up being enough, did it? I'll be honest, I wasn't convinced. Sure, he told a great story. Yes, he preached a good message. And fine, maybe all the rumors about his miracles were true, but Emmanuel... God with us, now that is a lot to swallow. After all, you can only tell so much about a man based on how he lives. But how he dies? That's another story. But you had to have been there to know what I'm talking about. That's why I'm asking you if you were there in the garden or at the courtyard, in the chambers or the assembly, on the road to Calvary or the walk up Golgotha. Because if you were there, you wouldn't have seen a man who was angry at the council, a man who was betrayed by the crowd. You wouldn't have seen a man who was willing to give up or give in. You wouldn't have seen a man who cared about being right or victorious or even about being God. You wouldn't have seen a man who was afraid of death. No, if if you were there, if you were actually there at that dark hour, if you were there when they nailed him to the tree and pierced him in his side, if you were there when they crucified my Lord, then you would have seen a man whose whole life was lived in expectation of his death. Because in dying, he gave us life. All of us. The ones who wanted him to rule the world. The ones who wanted him to die in shame. The ones who didn't even care enough to come out that day. He died for us all. When I look back to that fatal moment when he breathed his last breath, that's when I finally knew who this Jesus of Nazareth really was or really is. Truly this man was God's son. Truly. This man is God's son. Just thinking about it causes me to tremble. To tremble. To tremble. Were you there when I crucified my Lord? A reading from John chapter 19. And that is what the soldiers did. And that is what the soldiers did. And that is what I did. To be fair, it was common practice amongst us soldiers to take a dead man's clothes and keep them for ourselves. After all, why did he need them anymore? And to be fair, it made sense that we cast lots for the seamless robe, no need to ruin a perfectly good tunic. And to be fair, we are not having this conversation so we can talk about my flaws and so you can point your finger at me. Because to be fair, to be honest, to be blunt, we aren't just taking a look at my sin, we're taking a look at yours too. I'm just helping you along in the process. Which is fine. What do I care? My missteps, while immortalized in the pages of Scripture, are over and done with. You're the one who is still living in a world of constant temptation to turn away from God, to miss the mark, to choose yourself over your Maker. So if picking me apart helps you see the sin lodged in your own heart, go ahead. What do I care? Now let's start with your obvious questions. Why did I do what I did? Why did I execute that man? Why did I crucify your Jesus? Because it was my job. Next question. Oh, you want more? You want to know why I killed that man, your Jesus? Fine. Where do I begin? Because my superior told me to. Because I had a family to support and mouths to feed. Because I was a soldier and that's what soldiers did. That's what soldiers do. Because I didn't so much care about the people we were executing. And last but not least, because I had to look out for myself. In case you didn't know, there isn't a lot of question asking in this line of work. We're not like you people. We don't sit around and discuss the meaning behind what we do or the impact on the world around us. You either do what you are told or you don't get paid. Next question. Let me guess, you wanna know why we wanted, why we fought over, why we gambled for a dead man's clothing in the first place. Again, making a living was different back then than it is now. You made what you could pull together, which means the biggest racket wasn't what you earned from killing a man, it was what you could get from scrounging through his stuff, even his filthy rags. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Salt and water can take care of just about any stain, even blood. Now here's the unintended benefit of this little side business. I stopped seeing the people I had to kill, well, as people. They were just bodies carrying the goods I needed to sell, the goods I wanted to sell. Sure, these individuals may have had value to the people who knew them when they were alive, but to me, they were worth precisely the amount of gold I could profit from their death. It wasn't always that way. When I started this job, I was a kid. A poor kid. This isn't the kind of career that one who has a choice chooses. This is what you do when your goal is simply to survive. So it always struck me as odd that my survival depended on someone else's extinction. Someone had to die so that I could make enough to live. The more I thought about it, it all felt very cold and empty, and in my lowest of lows, I almost quit the business altogether. I would have rather begged for my supper than have someone else's blood on my hands, guilty or otherwise. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but it didn't take that long for that original feeling of cold emptiness To be replaced by an insatiable hunger for possessions, an unending desire for wealth. The more I had, the more I wanted. I no longer felt like a victim to my circumstances. I was the master of my own universe, and everything and everyone around me was merely there for my benefit, my pleasure, and my profit. That's exactly how I approached the events that fateful night. Performing the actual execution was second nature, like breathing. It was the part that came afterwards that made me come alive. And that robe he was wearing, a perfect, seamless tunic, was almost enough to keep me completely distracted from the utter strangeness of this man and the throngs of people who came to watch him die. Some were there greedy for his death. It was almost as if his demise made them more powerful, more justified. But others were there greedy for his life. It was almost as if his survival made them more powerful, more justified. In a weird way, it was as if no one was there for him. They were all there for themselves. They all had something to gain, just like me. It doesn't really matter how you slice and dice it. That's all greed, and trust me, I would know. Always looking out for yourself, taking for yourself, amassing for yourself. That is greed. But it's also fear. Fear that you're the only one who cares about you. Fear that you're the only one who will provide for you. You become so afraid of your own death that you would greedily feast on someone else's. Look, I know that my death wasn't some big loss for the world, but even in my cynicism, I have to say I expected this Jesus guy's death to be different. After all, I kept hearing that he was all about everyone else, giving away his stuff, his food, his time, his life, so that everyone else could be taken care of. If anyone deserved to have someone there for him and with him during his last breath, it was this guy. But there he was, the least greedy of us all, the least sinful of us all, the least guilty of us all, taking on our greed, our sin, our guilt but he didn't seem to mind it that much. In fact, he seemed to be at peace in those final moments. And for the rest of my life that stayed with me, his death stayed with me. It's funny because after a lifetime of hustling and stealing and struggling, I realized that all I had was worth nothing in the end. Ironically, when my number came up, I was hungry for only one thing. I was greedy for only one thing, and that was my death. Believe it or not, in the end, after all of my questions had been answered, the only thing I wanted was to be free from it all, to be at peace with my life. In the end, I guess the only thing I wanted was to be like him. A reading from John chapter 19. Meanwhile, standing near the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. Then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here ends the reading. I'll always remember the day I found out I was pregnant. How could I forget? Never mind the anxiety, the fear, and the complete and utter shock, I was carrying and creating new life inside of me. With every alien movement that emanated from my womb, I was reminded that life is a miracle. He was a miracle. Even before he entered into the world, he changed everything for me. My life had new purpose that was never afforded to me when I was seen as just a simple, ignorant girl. Because now, with this precious child in my belly, I saw myself as a proud and powerful woman, for he was my son, and I was his mother. I'll always remember the day he was born. The journey had been exhausting and terrifying. I thank God that Joseph believed me and that he stayed. I couldn't have done it without his help. I couldn't have done it alone. Running from the wrath of Herod, sleeping in a den of animals, aching from my head to my toes, it was almost too much to handle. And just when I thought I couldn't take another moment of it, he arrived. Naked, screaming, frail, and perfect. I recall being overwhelmed by how much he needed me, how much his life depended on me. No one ever taught me how to care for a baby, and yet somehow I knew because he was my son and I was his mother. I'll always remember the day we thought we had lost him forever. Just like every other year, we went to Jerusalem for Passover. And just like every other year, once the festival was over, we packed up our things and traveled the long journey home with the rest of the family. But this particular time, after a day of traveling, Joseph and I realized he wasn't among our caravan. No one had seen him or knew where he was, so Joseph and I rushed back into town to find him. The trip back was excruciating. Every hour was plagued with guilt over losing my beloved firstborn, fear over what might have happened to him, and anger over his carelessness, over my carelessness. Three days of traveling, three days of worrying, Three days of searching in every nook and cranny of Jerusalem, and then out of nowhere, there he was, just sitting in the temple courts without a worry in the world, asking the rabbi's questions beyond his years and giving them answers beyond his comprehension. Before I even knew what I was doing, I just was running towards him and I embraced him as if he was a little child, touching his face to make sure it was really him, breathing in his familiar sense. Sure, I was still angry, but in that moment, nothing mattered more than the fact that he was my son and I was his mother. I'll always remember the day he turned water into wine. We were at a wedding in Cana, and the family had run out of wine. Now, I'm a firm believer that no wedding should be without wine, so I wanted to help somehow, but he was reluctant. He claimed his hour had not yet come, but I disagreed, and a mother always knows best. So I directed the servants to follow his instructions, and they did. Within an hour, gallons upon gallons of the finest wine were being poured for every guest, servant, and passerby. Yet instead of basking in the glory of this miracle and enjoying the wedding, he slipped away quietly before taking any of the credit, before hearing any of the praise. He always did that when he performed a miracle. So I made sure to catch him on his way out just to let him know how proud I was of him. After all, he was my son, and I was his mother. I'll always remember the day he died. I thought riding a donkey nine months pregnant was painful. I thought losing a child for three days was unmanageable, but nothing, and I mean nothing, compared to the day they arrested him, the day they convicted him, the day they crucified him. I couldn't believe it when word came that he had been arrested, that one of his own had given him up, and that he didn't fight back when they listed false charges. I remember how the same crowd that had gathered just a week earlier to celebrate him had gathered again to watch him fall. It was as if they were possessed. Their eyes were full of so much anger and hatred as they screamed for his death. I felt helpless. I didn't know what to do, what I could do, so I started screaming too, possessed with my own anger and hatred for his accusers. I screamed, What crime has he committed? What is his offense? This man is innocent. My son is innocent. Everything he ever did was out of love for you people, and yet he is the one in chains, and you are the one ones walking free. You should be ashamed of yourselves. You are the guilty ones. You are the criminals. You should be crucified. But no one would listen to me. No one would even acknowledge me. No one would even look at me. In their eyes, I had become a mad woman. So they started to treat me like one. Moving out of my way as if I was diseased, scowling at me as if I was unclean. Some looked at me with compassion, but most with disgust. They say no parent should ever have to bury their child. I say no parent should ever have to watch their child, their innocent son, their helpless baby, their perfect miracle being nailed to a cross, one limb at a time. For every time they shouted words of hate at him, they were shouting them at me. Every time they spat on his face, they were spitting on me. Every time they whipped, beat, and tortured him, they whipped beat, and tortured me. For everything they did to him, they did to me. After all, he was my son, and I was his mother.